I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, our text this Lord's Day will be verses 11 through 17. So if you've been with us, you know that Luke is recording now the ongoing ministry of Jesus. And what we're building towards in chapter 7, what will come just after this passage is a report is going to go to John the Baptist from John's disciples about all these things that have taken place. And all these things that they're reporting are are the very things we've been looking at in recent days. The, the preaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Plain and then going to Capernaum as we looked at last Lord's Day and healing the servant of the centurion who was, you remember in that passage, near the point of death. And, and now Jesus, the report that will go to John is he's come to another place, a very small uh, village, uh, a place called Nain. And what we'll see there is not him encountering one who is near the point of death, but one who has died. Uh, a young man who is being taken now out to the hills to be uh, buried in a tomb and his mother and others following along, weeping and grieving. But the miraculous, just as it's taken place already, will take place again as Jesus will raise the son of this widow back to life. And so as we're reading these things and studying these things, uh, know that this sermon coming next week is what all this is building towards, this report that's going to John the Baptist. But before we get there, we find ourselves here in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. And we stand because this is the word of our creator, God. It's been handed down to us. It was recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a doctor named Luke. And now we have this before us today that we might learn from it and be edified, that we might have faith. So this is what God's word says to us. Soon after, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. If you would pray with me. Father, this report that spread of Jesus we're still spreading it today. That, that this is the one. This is the Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has power and authority over all things, including death. Because he has defeated death. Father, help us to see this gospel truth. Help us to see it, to savor it, 
and to respond to it. We ask now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was recently reading an excerpt from a book entitled The View from a Hearse, A Christian View of Death. It was written by a man named Joseph Bailey. He passed just a few decades ago, but he was uniquely qualified to write a book entitled The View from a Hearse because he knew that view well. During his lifetime, he and his wife Mary Lou buried three of their sons. The first one passed away as an infant after an emergency surgery when he was only 18 days old. The second died at the age of five after a battle with leukemia. The third son died at the age of 18 after a freak accident when he was sledding. This man, Joseph Bailey, uniquely knew what it was to suffer tragedy, and especially the tragedy of the loss of a child, that would lead him to write these words. Of all deaths, that of a child is the most unnatural and the hardest to bear. The death of a child is a period placed before the end of a sentence, sometimes when the sentence was hardly begun. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. When a child dies, part of the parent is buried with them. I can vividly remember speaking to a young mother seeking to, to comfort her after she had lost her child. And I remember her words very clearly as she said to me, mothers are not supposed to bury their children. And yet, we find ourselves in this passage with that very thing, that very tragedy, that, that hardship and that heartache that has come to this woman. We don't know the age of her son in this passage, only that Jesus refers to him as a young man. And we don't know the circumstances related to his death other than he has passed. And his funeral procession is now leaving his town on the way to his burial. And when that procession meets another procession, this group of Jesus and his disciples, this great crowd who is following along with them. And so these, these crowds, they intersect and the miraculous takes place. And so we're going to walk through this passage today. And as we do, I want to point out three observations to you. The first one is this. Number one in your outline there. It begins this passage with us saying that Jesus has compassion for this helpless widow. We see his compassion. Luke begins in verse 11 by telling us that soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. That verse, that, that term there, the phrase in the Greek soon afterwards can also be translated the next day. And so this event immediately follows the event that we just looked at. He leaves Capernaum where one who was close to the point of death has been completely healed. It seems that Jesus never even saw this servant that he healed. He got the report of it. It came back and then now he's traveling on to Nain. Nain was a town 
that was about 25 miles away from Capernaum. This would have taken an entire day to get to. So chances are that Jesus and his disciples have left the scene of one miraculous healing. And now they are headed towards the town of Nain. And as we've already seen at this point, uh, Jesus travels with a crowd. And when he comes down the mountain there to give the sermon on the plain, he has his apostles, he has his disciples, and then there's this, this great crowd that is formed. And this is at a point in Jesus' ministry when hundreds are coming out to not only hear what he has to say, but to see what he's going to do. And hopes that they too might be touched by the healing works of this rabbi that many are now calling the Messiah, that some are referring to as Lord. And so you can kind of picture the scene here. Luke tells it to us this way, that, that as he drew near to the gate, this would have been outside the city. It would have been going into the town. It, it's not necessarily the picture that there were fortified walls around this city with a gate. Rather, there was a, a marker there outside of town. And like you might see, you know, welcome to Bloomfield, just outside of town as you're coming in. This would have been a, a stone marker, some type of a gate that would have been there letting people know that, know that they were coming to the town of Nain because otherwise they might not know much about Nain. And Nain is only mentioned here in the Scripture. We don't see it recorded anywhere else in the Old and New Testament. But you can look on a map of the ministry of Jesus, perhaps one you have in your Bible this morning, and you can see where Nain is located. And so Jesus has left the, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's traveled down the, the southwest side. And so you can find Nazareth on a map. And you go just kind of south, southeast of Nazareth. And then there's this little town of Nain. It's a town, by the way, that still exists today. The population are about 200 people. And nothing historically, no archaeological evidence suggests that it's ever been anything more than just a, a small town, a small town village. You might think of it as a, a pit stop that pilgrims might have between one larger city than another. And so, in modern terms, someone's traveling from Elizabethtown to Lexington and they stop, stop off in Bloomfield. Except Bloomfield's four times the size of Nain, so really they'd have to stop off in Fairfield. And, and here they are in this small village, or not quite to this small village. They, they're drawing near to it, this gate that would have marked the entrance into it. And Luke tells us, verse 12, Behold, this man had died. He was being carried out. Now, funerals in Jesus' day were very different than funerals in our day. This young man's death would not have been announced and people wouldn't have been told well, there's going to be visitation on this day and the graveside on this day. In Jesus' day, when someone passed away, they were buried immediately. There was mourning, there was grieving, there was lamenting, but the entire town would come out and would gather as that person, that deceased, was taken then outside of the city, through the city gates, and most often they were taken to a hillside where burial did not mean digging a hole in the ground. It meant they carved out in that hillside a tomb. And the body would be placed in that tomb and then rocks would have covered the entrance to protect that body from animals. And so this young man had likely died hours, 
maybe even minutes before. There would have been time just to prepare his body for burial, to, to wrap a shroud, a linen cloth around him, to put perhaps uh, spices and, 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 and flowers and, and perfuming ointments on him. And now he's being grieved as he's being carried out. And we also know historically in this day, this would not have been like it is today where there's an elaborate casket they're placed in and then that casket sealed and put into some type of concrete vault. No, this would have been a, an open casket. And this description we have here is of uh, probably either wood or some type of woven uh, fabric or excuse me, sticks that would have been put together to, to make this, this basket that would have been open. The body then placed on top of it, the people carrying it out of the town. And Luke says, as they're doing this, the only description he gives us of him was he was the only son of his mother and of her. The only thing we know is that she was a widow. Well, we don't know the story. Well, we don't know the sickness. We don't know if this has been a long illness or a sudden one. Well, we don't know if something had built up to this. We, we don't know really much about the, the faith of this woman, if she had cried out to the Lord on behalf of her son. The faith of this son. Again, we don't even know the age of the son. All we know is that he's died and she's hopeless. And because in this context, this day, this culture, that this woman to no longer have a husband and now to no longer have a son essentially gave the, the picture here that she's just hopeless and helpless. And not that she can't do anything for herself, but, but in this day, in this age, this would mean she would, at this point, she would own no property. She would literally have nothing. She would have to be cared for by others. And now we know she is walking a path she has walked before because she's a widow. She's walked out of that gate. She's walked this procession. She's followed behind another open casket. Perhaps she is now going to the very place where her husband was buried in the side of that hill. And now her son will be placed there as well. It is a sad and it is a rather hopeless situation. But God has a way of bringing hope to hopeless situations, doesn't He? Of coming to those who are, who are utterly helpless and bringing them help. And we see that here, verse 12, that as Jesus, He, he, he comes to this situation, as He sees what's going on here, He has moved to compassion, to, to mercy. And he, the indication here is he sees this from a distance. One crowd approaching another crowd. And as he sees what's taking place and sees the, the helplessness of this woman, verse 13, Luke tells us he sees her. He has compassion on her. And, and now he's close enough to, to talk to her. And he simply says, do not weep. Now again, just, just imagine this context. I know it's so foreign to us, so different, not, not the process we have, but, but in our context today, imagine you, you are grieving a grief beyond all griefs. Mothers are not supposed to bury their children. 
And now you are grieving this grief, this heavy burden and weight. You are on the way to bury your child. This crowd approaches. This rabbi comes to you. He says, don't weep. Now, I don't believe that this is God's way of teaching us that we should not cry at funerals. You, the matter of conscience, you, you deal with death however you want to deal with death. But, but biblically, we are not taught as Christians to just completely celebrate death. To, to somehow pretend or imagine that it's not hard and it's not grieving. I mean, I have said to my wife and children, you better cry at my funeral. And, and I've wept at funerals. And you've wept at funerals. Jesus. Jesus wept when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. So Jesus is not saying to us here, well, you know, turn that frown upside down and you don't have any reason to be sorry. You better just stop crying right now. No, the, the, the way he's saying this, he's, he's moved to compassion. He has great mercy and he goes to this one who seems so helpless and hopeless and he says to them just you don't have to weep anymore and he doesn't the scripture record him he doesn't explain himself he doesn't say don't weep because your son's about to get out of that casket but he knows exactly what's about to happen and because of what's about to happen he can say to this woman you don't need to weep anymore because what you're grieving is about to be undone. And, and this, this child, this young son that you've lost, that you're mourning over, you're, you're about to get him back. And so you, you don't need to weep anymore. And so, he says this to her. And essentially, in saying this to her, he's building up to what he's about to do. Which brings us to that second observation. Number two, we see here that Jesus has power over this young man's life. He has power over this young man's life. You, you can trace a thread in Luke's gospel, and it's the thread of power and authority. It's how we saw that the ministry of Jesus introduced by Luke in his gospel. Jesus, he has authority over sickness. He has authority over the demonic realm. He has authority over all these things. He has authority over life and death. He can speak into death and bring the dead back to life. And we see that here. Verse 14, Luke tells us, then Jesus, He comes up and He touches this casket. Now, there is nothing shocking about that to us today. In fact, that's a normal thing we see at funerals, isn't it? You see people, they, they come up to the casket, and many times as the funeral is ending, they're, they're, they're touching the casket. That They're touching at times the deceased. And when that happens, nobody says, oh. there's, there's no shock to that. There's no awe to that. But in Jesus' day, you didn't touch the casket. God's Word said in 
the book of Numbers, that to, to touch the casket, to, to touch the dead, that this would make a person unclean immediately. And they would remain unclean for seven days. You, you didn't touch a dead body. Why? Because you wanted to remain clean. Because if you were unclean, you couldn't go and worship with God's people. If you were unclean, you couldn't be around others because if they touched you, then they became unclean as well. And so Jesus, He goes and He, he touches this casket. This basket. You've probably heard the, the term basket case. We use that term to refer to people who are, you know, sometimes we refer to people who are kind of out of their mind. And usually it's, you know, they're just so stressed out and so overwhelmed that they literally can't make a decision. They can't do anything. They're, they're just a basket case. And there are varying opinions of where that term comes from, but most agree that it, it goes back to these open baskets that were used to carry the dead and at times to carry the severely wounded and close to dead in battle. And that term was referred to a basket case as someone who was hopeless and helpless. Nobody could do anything for them. Well, that, that's fitting here, isn't it? I mean, certainly no one could do anything for this young man who's dead. And, and this mother in Jesus' day, that this widow, she would have been a, a basket case in the sense that she was hopeless. And she's helpless. But Jesus... With him, no one's hopeless. <laughs> and so he, he touches this basket again. It, it makes him unclean in the moment. And that's foreign to us, but, but in ways we can think about this. When I was reading this, I was thinking about my experience almost a year ago now when I had a, a kidney transplant. You know that I, I couldn't be around anybody. And it wasn't because I was unclean. It's because all y'all are unclean. Everything's unclean. Lunch meat, really unclean. And so as I'm leaving the hospital, they're giving me this, this booklet and really this binder full of stuff. And over and over again, it's like, can't do this, can't do this, can't touch this, can't eat this, can't go to these places, can't be around these people. Why? Because my body at that point had no immunity. And, and to get the slightest bit of infection could have undone everything had been done, could have even been deadly for me. And so I was very cautious. And you allowed me that opportunity to be cautious. I'm very thankful for that. But, but I can remember every moment of every day, what I would think about is, how unclean is that? <laughs> I, I go to wash my hands in my own bathroom, and I think, wait, has this faucet been cleaned? <laughs> And so there I am, I'd put on rubber gloves and I'd wipe off the faucet with a Clorox wipe before I would take off the gloves to wash my hands. And I'm sure to the outside observer that looks rather neurotic, but it was because I, I didn't want to become unclean. And there's an element of that we see among the Jewish people in response to the law of God. That there was an awareness of what makes one unclean. And to touch that casket would have been at the pinnacle of uncleanliness. I mean, this would be like your, your child jumping in the septic tank. That's nasty. Don't do that. 
in Jesus' day, for anyone else who was ceremonially clean to touch something that was ceremonially unclean, immediately they become unclean and what they had touched was still unclean. But Jesus, who is clean and holy and righteous, He touches the unclean. He stays clean and the unclean becomes clean. (laughs) Because He has all authority and all power. Because He indeed is Lord of all creation. And so when He touches this young man, and He says to this young man, Arise! Guess what happens? He gets up. And this audible gasp, because Jesus, the rabbi, has done what everybody knows you're not supposed to do, and now he's going to be unclean. I mean, again, think about it. This crowd, they left their homes. They left everything. They want to see Jesus teach. They want to see Jesus heal. They want to be touched by Jesus. And now, immediately, their thought is, well, there's a week gone. We can't be around him for seven days. And of all places, we're in Nain. (laughs) There's nothing here. They're thinking about themselves. Jesus is thinking about this mother and this young man. And he touches him. In verse 15, the miraculous, Luke tells us that the dead man sat up and began to speak. <laughs> I mean, just picture that for a moment. He's pulling off, well, pulling, pulling off his glasses. He didn't have glasses. He's pulling off his shroud. He's taking off these spices. And then he starts talking. I would love to know what he said. <laughs> you can imagine what he might have said. I heard one pastor preach on this text. He says, well, depending on if he was a young man, as far as a teenager, he probably said, I'm hungry. You know, Mom, let's eat. But you can imagine. We, we don't know all these details, but here he is lifted up above this crowd and he's looking down on them and there's his mother who's been weeping and grieving and there's all these his entire village they're there Jesus is touching him and telling him get get up and get out the dead man sat up he began to speak and Jesus he gave him to his I mean, what, what, a, what a picture of mercy and compassion. I'm sure she would have been content just with the son getting up out of the casket, coming himself. There's this picture here of the compassion of our Lord. There's this, this reunion that's taking place. Of here, here he is. Here, here's your son. No more tears. Remember what I just said. You don't need to weep any longer. Because here he is. And what a beautiful picture this is. And it's given to us for a reason. All things in God's Word are given to us for a reason. That this report will go to John the Baptist for a reason. This, this was done before his disciples and before this great town for a reason. And I think this is given to us today for a reason as well, and it's this, number three, that we might be reminded that Jesus is Lord, and one day He will raise us, and He will reunite us 
And by us, I mean those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus, those of us who understand the gospel truth that Jesus was carried out of a city and out of the gate, that Jesus went to a hill and He died on the cross and Jesus then was placed in the tomb. The stone was rolled in front of it. And Jesus in that moment, He is grieved and He is lamented by all those who loved Him, by all those who cared for Him and followed Him, by His widowed mother. But Jesus came out of that grave. And Jesus defeated sin and death. And Jesus was raised. And in Jesus being raised, we have this hope and this promise that one day we will be raised as well. If our trust and our hope is in Jesus, if we have confessed Him as our Lord, that's the response we're called to. Romans 10, if you will confess Jesus as your Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead because of the great love that God had for us, because of the mercy that He had for us, He raises Jesus who died in our place. That's the response we're called to. But, but notice in this foretaste we're given, the response of those who witness it. Because I think Jesus here, He's, I mean, my goodness, he's, he's going to be teaching the disciples soon about His own resurrection and His own raising. I mean, they're there. That This would be a good time for them to take some good notes. <laughs> Jesus here raises the dead as a foretaste that one day He will raise the dead. Jesus here, he, he raises this son and he gives him back to his mother as a foretaste of a day that's coming for us in Christ when one day we will be raised and we will be reunited. Here's your father. Here's your mother. Here's your child. Here's your brother. Here's your sister. This great reunion. When we all get to heaven, the day of rejoicing. I mean, can you imagine being around each other and we don't sin anymore? We might like each other a little better, you know? But there's no division. Nobody's upset. Nobody's fretting Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> it's all right and it's all well because Jesus, He's made all things new and He says this, this great reunion's coming. Here's a foretaste of it. Here's your son back. Notice their response, verse 16. Fear sees them all. Now, this is a reverence. This isn't a, oh my goodness, we're, you know, this is crazy demonic and we're so scared. This is, God, did, man, this is amazing. They're attributing this to God. And so this is a holy fear, a holy reverence. It, it seizes them all. And so then what do they do? They glorify God. So that's a right response. They praise God for this. But here's where I think they might have missed things a little bit. They say, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And so they spread this report everywhere, and then that takes us to the next passage where this report goes to John the Baptist. A great prophet. Well, yeah, Jesus is the greatest prophet and priest and king. He fulfills these roles and these offices, but he was so much more than a prophet. 
And I think the reason they say a great prophet has risen, arisen among us is because immediately, for any good Hebrew in that day, immediately their minds would have gone right back to that passage that Pastor Jacob read for us earlier. 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, you have Elijah who was a prophet. Elijah who in and of himself, he had no power to heal, no authority, but he came on behalf to people with the authority of God, on behalf of God. God spoke to his people through the prophets. And so you have Elijah in that situation with another widow in that situation who's lost her son. Elijah doesn't have the power to say to that boy, get up and arise. But he cries out to God. And you may remember that scene in First. Kings 17, he literally, he, he spreads out his arms and he, he lays down over the child and he cries out to God three times. He prays to God three times. God breathes life back into that boy. And then if you know the scene, he, he, he does. I mean, the language is almost identical here. He takes that boy to his mother and he says, here's your son. So, so this would have been the, the dinnertime story. This would have been the, the Bible lesson and family devotions. This would have been what every good Hebrew family, one of the things they would have talked about. Remember when the great prophet Elijah raised the widow's son. And now, Jesus, the miracle-working rabbi, has come to their little town off the beaten path, and, and now God has come to us to name He's visited us, and how has He done that? He sent another great prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And look, He did what Elijah did. Oh, He's a great prophet. And so they tell everybody, He's, he's a great prophet. But He's so much more than a great prophet. And, and I think for many that were there, they, they missed it because we see and we follow in the Gospels this great multitude when Jesus goes to the cross, it gets really small really fast. Because they were fine as long as Jesus, you know, he's just, he's a prophet. He's, he's a great rabbi. He's a really good teacher. When it comes to this issue of him, him dying, God raising him, his lordship, so many didn't accept that message. And it's not all that different today, is it? It's rather tempting to come to a church and to hear a message and to try to walk away with some good moral application, some lesson. Well, if I just had faith like this woman, then God would do things for me as well. Nothing about her faith is ever mentioned. She could have been the most godless woman in that village. We don't know anything about her faith. And we certainly aren't told that this son was raised because she had faith. This son was raised by Jesus Christ that we might see he truly is Lord and he is King and he is the one with all authority and all power that he indeed would go to the cross, die in our place, that he would be raised, that we might be raised as well. And that we might look to and long for the day of the great resurrection that is coming. This is 
a foretaste. It's a deposit. And it's put before us this morning that, that we might have faith in Jesus as Lord. Because we know what it is to suffer. And we know what it is to grieve. And God in His Word is saying, listen, there's, there's a day coming when you won't grieve any longer. Do you believe it? Are you holding fast to it today? I believe that God is inviting us to do that very thing because He speaks of us, speaks to us so often in His Word. He, he reminds us over and over again in His Word that this day is coming. In fact, he specifically says of this day in Isaiah 65 that in a new heaven and a new earth, we won't be burying our children anymore. All this is undone. He says in Revelation 21, there's no more death. And, and, and there's no more mourning and there's no more grieving. Do you believe that today? Are you holding fast to that today? I believe God is inviting us to do that very thing. So that in the hardest days, we might have hope. <laughs> Not be basket cases, but might have hope. And our hope is found in no other place and no other person than our God and our King Jesus Christ. May we hope in Him today. If you would stand together with me as I pray for that very thing.